You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower received daily intelligence, but it wasn't personalized to them. And that's where John Kennedy comes in. Uh, let's talk about the current president. It has really brought the PDB into light. The mythology in my mind was that Reagan wasn't much of a reader at all, certainly not of top secret intelligence. But three things in my research uh, lead me to reassess that and debunk that idea. You know, there's some worry that perhaps like a president could greatly disrupt the intelligence agency so far from the norm. If this president or a future president wants his daily intelligence report in, in the form of tweets, that's that's doable. Uh, I've written analysis that was one or two sentences long. That music theme was created by Chris Novembrino, who is of the Don't Worry About the Government podcast, www.dontworry.tv. If you have a podcast or any other project that you need music for, contact Chris. He's awfully good at it. Really excited about the show today because we have a listener to the program who is also former CIA intelligence officer and an expert in the president's daily brief the pdb as it's called in washington parlance it's that little book of secrets that the president gets that gives them the sum up of intelligence analysis for the day david has interviewed experts on it including several former presidents right now www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com that is our website Go visit it. We have a link to David's book. We'll also have links to where you can view actual declassified copies of previous President's Daily Briefs. Here's the interview. I'm joined today by a listener to the program. He is Dr. David Priest. He's the author of The President's Book of Secrets, The Untold Story of Intelligence Briefings to America's Presidents. Dr. David Priest served during the Clinton and George W. Bush administrations as an award-winning intelligence officer, manager, and daily intelligence briefer at the CIA, as well as a desk officer at the State Department. Priest obtained his Ph.D. in political science from Duke University. He now works as a writer, consultant, and speaker. David, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bruce. It's a pleasure to join you. I think the book really provides an interesting viewpoint in history and politics of today in an area that uh, us lay people can't get at. Your book goes into the history of this daily briefing that presidents get. And I found it 
interesting, first of all, to jump back into its history a bit, that we really are looking at the product of John F. Kennedy's personality and his frenetic pace that, start, right. that started this. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, it it surprised me a bit digging into the research of this, uh, even though I'd worked in the intelligence business, to find out that for the majority of our country's history, there was no daily analytic product going to the president of the United States to help him make national security decisions. I mean, certainly you had George Washington as spy master himself who had experience with intelligence, but then you had a long gap until essentially the Second World War when FDR was getting intelligence, but it wasn't what we would call sophisticated analysis like we have today. Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower received daily intelligence, but it wasn't personalized to them. And that's where John Kennedy comes in. John Kennedy came into office with a very different approach to meetings and to getting information than his predecessor. And the CIA adapted, and they created a product called the President's Intelligence Checklist, which was designed personally for Kennedy, written in a journalistic style, because Kennedy had worked in journalism. It was punchy prose, very accessible, unlike any other government documents. It got rid of those annoying classification markings and things like that. It was designed for his style and for his preferences. That has been the product ever since. I suppose when it comes to the president, there's there's no need for the classification document. This is really the the, the president gets to see the actual intelligence in this document. He can, primarily through its history, the the president's intelligence checklist and then the president's daily brief that it evolved into. Traditionally, those are vehicles for intelligence analysis, taking all the raw reporting, synthesizing it, and presenting to the President of the United States what the experts think is going on. But because it's going to the President of the United States, it can include anything, because there's nothing that can't be shown to the President. So for various presidents, yes, it has included raw intelligence operational information, very sensitive sourcing, things that don't appear in any other document going to lower-ranking officials. And this is indeed delivered every day to the President, including Sundays. It has varied. Uh, Some presidents took it seven days a week. Most have taken it five or six days a week, not on Sundays. It's really in the name, the President's Daily Brief, and it took that name under Lyndon Johnson. It describes most everything you need to know about it. It's the President's book, and so it is written for the President, even though every president has allowed others to also read it. It's, It's daily, however the President defines that, And it is brief. Uh, This is not a 100-page compendium of everything that the intelligence community has on every topic that day. It's boiled down to what they think the president needs to know on that particular day. And it's uh, does is it is it actually that little black folder or little little black uh, book that we imagine? It can be. It's taken several forms over the years. For for John Kennedy, it originally was printed on smaller than regular size paper, small enough that he could fold it and put it right into his suit pocket because he was constitutionally unable, it seemed, to sit still long enough for a full-length briefing or to read a full-length document. So they wanted something he could carry around with him during the day and return to when he had a break in the action. 
For other presidents, it traditionally has been eight and a half by 11 size pages, but put into a book. For many decades, it was actually bound. Every morning, the printing plant at CIA headquarters would bind the book together, either on the side or at the top, depending on the president. But for George W. Bush, they broke the binding and they just used a very fancy three ring binder, which allowed them to pop in last minute intelligence reporting, literally as the briefers were walking out the door. The biggest format change was for President Obama, because President Obama received his president's daily brief on an iPad. He received it electronically instead of in paper form. And uh, there's a number of people who are working on editing this. Is the process a lot like yep. a, a newspaper where there's, a, you know, a, a, you might have an individual research analyst uh, writing an article and the intelligence equivalent of a, of a managing editor uh, taking the next step? Yep. That's the best parallel to it, Bruce. It, it is a lot like running a newspaper with a couple of key differences. One, of course, is the content that... Everything involved in the process is classified and thus very tightly controlled. The other one is that instead of having an author with a byline and having a, a managing editor and perhaps a proofreader or two, uh, the process has a few more steps these days because if something goes to the president and it is not vetted and it is simply a minority view that is not shared widely, it has massive consequences. So before it gets to the equivalent of the managing editor, the author of a piece of analysis for the president's daily brief will go through a process of coordination where they will work with other experts in the intelligence community to make sure that the logic and argumentation are sound, to make sure that they haven't missed any relevant evidence that's out there in the intelligence take, and also to anticipate alternative arguments and make sure if there's an alternate explanation that is nearly as likely that that is also presented to the president. And you talk a lot about the feedback loop and how important it is that they use whatever information comes back from the White House, either the president right. or the national security advisor. Um, perhaps with, with Reagan, it might be in the form of one of his famous little handwritten notes on the directly on the yep. document, or the national security advisor provides this information back to the agency in terms of what they'd like uh, Carter's case maybe he did want to see some more uh, minority viewpoints on some of the on mm -hmm. some of the research Reagan asking for more detail in some cases yeah this was one of the fascinating parts of the research Bruce in uh, speaking with at the time I was researching the book uh, speaking with all of the living former presidents and vice presidents CIA directors and chatting with the vast majority of the national security advisors, secretaries of state and defense, I got from them just how robust this feedback mechanism was. And it was amazing that on the intelligence side, how desperate the authors, the editors, the intelligence leaders, how desperate they were for feedback. When a president did not give feedback on this daily product, there was almost a sense of panic. What are we doing wrong? Why is this not working? With Richard Nixon, they received virtually no feedback from the White House at all. And when it did come, it was largely from Dr. Henry Kissinger, the National Security Advisor. Richard Nixon didn't give them any feedback at all on this product during his entire time as president-elect when he started seeing it and then as president. 
And it was a crisis for the agency. They felt that they didn't know how to serve the president well. They felt that he didn't appreciate the product. And there's a whole lot of work that goes into it. Other presidents have given more or less feedback in various forms, ranging from face-to-face communication with a briefer to written notes on the product itself that are then passed back to the CIA. And, and you mentioned that, uh, or you mentioned the past that uh, you, you interviewed uh, Bill Clinton for the uh, for the yeah. book, and uh, that he said that even on an uneventful day, you could get ninety percent of what he needed to make a good decision and he couldn't imagine a president you know not taking it seriously or not reading it carefully president obama said that he'd be flying blind without the pdb yeah and that's interesting to me from uh, from bill clinton when i spoke with him because he had made some comments earlier that weren't quite as positive about the president's daily brief he had said that to the 911 commission when they interviewed him He had said that, yes, he read the president's daily brief, but he also read the daily product from the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research called the Secretary's Morning Summary, presented for the Secretary of State, but traditionally also passed to the White House. And he said he often found that better reading. So I asked him about that, and he said, yeah, you know, I I did. They're, They're written in different styles. But the main point he gave me was what you mentioned, which is he felt that there wasn't a day that he didn't get something useful out of that product. And many days, it was crucial for driving the agenda inside the White House. Oh, yeah. Well, we're certainly talking about a voracious reader there that might have had something to do with there was some criticism of um, Mm -hmm. uh, him, uh, perhaps a light criticism that both he and Bush at various times had received some kind of warning about uh, bin Laden and attempts to perhaps commit an attack on the United States and it it mm-hmm. perhaps is is his response perhaps is in response to that but also if we if we use the PDB as uh if we think of the PDB as a tool that a president might use if that's very useful to understanding like what a president does but if people investigating back later use the PDB as a kind of this was the president's mind on the day I or I might yeah. be critical of that approach uh what do you think about that Yeah I'm with you Bruce because you have to remember the the purpose and the context of the president's daily brief uh first the purpose It is to give the president the best view of the intelligence experts on the foreign situation that relates to national security. If it's facts, it's not intelligence because intelligence deals with the unknown, the uncertain. So the purpose is to try to reduce that uncertainty for the president as much as possible on crucial national security issues. It is not to provide the answers. Now, sometimes it's amazing. Sometimes the intelligence collection is so exquisite that, yes, there can be a definitive answer to something presented in the book. Uh, One of the examples from history that actually preceded the president's daily brief was, of course, the imagery of Soviet missiles in Cuba. That that is a fact. That is something that intelligence collection can provide. Intelligence analysis is usually a little different. And the purpose of the president's daily brief traditionally has been to provide that analysis of what do we think is going on given the uncertainty. So that's the purpose of the PDB. It's not going to answer everything or tell the president what to do. 
it is by far not the only thing the president gets every day. The president is deluged with paper from the Situation Room on an hourly basis, from the National Security Advisor, from Cabinet Secretaries, from other members of the staff. The president's daily brief is one of many, many inputs, and it is not the sole thing driving the president, even on national security issues. There could be a perception among average people that intelligence agencies are, are mysterious, even scary. But I think what's interesting about your account of the PDB is that we see the agency kind of in a service mode, trying to serve its customer, the president elected mm-hmm. by the democracy, with very degrees of interest from them, and then conforming, morphing this document that started as the as, as kind of a manifestation of, of Kennedy's intelligence needs, morphing to to whatever president. I find that interesting if, if it's sort of a, a, just from a behavioral analysis point of view, if someone really is inclined yep. to think that, oh my God, I don't know what they're what the CIA is doing in that building over there, but you see here an agency really trying to serve its democratic customer. That's the real theme of, of my history of this is it is a customer service mentality. It is a customer service process to the point that the president is referred to in the PDB process at CIA and the rest of the intelligence agencies. The president is referred to as the first customer. And that really does tell you a lot about how the system works. The whole idea is to give the president what the president needs to know. The one difference from a traditional retail model is in retail, the mantra is the customer is always right. And you do whatever it takes to make the customer happy. Uh, That is different than the purpose of intelligence. The purpose of intelligence is not to tell the president what he wants to hear. In fact, you can get into a lot of trouble if you're simply telling the president what he wants to hear, and that does not align with the reality on the ground. Instead, the job of intelligence is to deliver to the customer the tough message, the uncomfortable truth that the president may not want to hear, but that the president needs to hear, and that other advisors might be shy about telling him because they have a stake in a particular policy going forward. So that is a customer service mentality that drives it all, And it explains some of the best stories in the PDB history when people will fall over themselves to try to get one additional insight into what would be useful to the president. Have there ever been car chases in D.C. as the uh, daily briefing is about to be delivered and there's one more correction to be made? I can give you two examples from when I was a briefer. Uh, I did not brief the president, but I briefed uh, the president's daily brief to senior customers during the George W. Bush administration. Uh, There are two ways of doing that. One way is getting the information as you're running out the door. And there were mornings like that. Mm-hmm. When the sun was coming up, I'd been in the office for a few hours preparing the briefing and getting it together. And then suddenly some bit of information comes in that's relevant to a piece inside the book. And we would simply get it in the book as we were running out the door. Uh, the other way is just through modern technology, through communications. Uh, there can be an update via secure phone or other means right up to the moment of the briefing so that It is current, and that is useful because it helps avoid some of the most embarrassing mistakes of the past, such as in 1973 when the president's daily brief was going to Richard Nixon and Dr. Kissinger, and it was telling them that although the Egyptian military exercises are remarkably realistic and the biggest we've ever seen, we don't anticipate any threat to Israel. And that was the product that was delivered 
as Egypt was and invading I, and I Israel. Uh, things like that happen, but but does that? Um, I guess a question that I have uh, about um, does that force or does it does it create in the agency a tendency to be wishy washy or to look at both sides of questions too much, or does this short kind of Kennedy-esque focus enforce the agency to really be decisive if they only have a few words. Yeah, it it goes both ways, Bruce, and there have been examples of this through history, and we can see some of it now because the president's intelligence checklists from the 60s and the president's daily briefs from the 60s and early 70s have been declassified, and you can actually go onto the CIA website or to the presidential libraries and see these daily documents and you'll see evidence of both. You'll see some evidence, some analysis that is remarkably bland and very open and has a lot of language with mites and coulds, which if I'm the president, isn't that useful to me. I found a lot of this back in the 1960s, that some of the intelligence going to John F. Kennedy was saying, you know, the Chinese might do this. And that just doesn't help me very much. On the other hand, you will find some very blunt predictions. And I think it depends on the topic. I think it depends on the details of the intelligence being brought to bear, the raw intelligence. Um, It also probably reflects confidence levels to the extent that the information base is weak and the sources aren't very good. The key is being clear to the customer what that certainty level is, because when that confidence level is not communicated well, Then you get something like the predictions of Iraq WMD, which were in the PDB. The claims were that Iraq probably had weapons of mass destruction programs for all of these reasons, but the analysts writing the piece did not put in why they were not fully confident, and thus a different message got through than they probably felt. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. You know, we all have this uh, picture, probably from a movie, where a person is in front of the president saying, Mr. President, Here's the intelligence situation in Colombia or something like this. And actually, though, you say that that briefing live is is not as common as we might think, and only certain presidents have been briefed live. That's right. It's uh, over the history of the PDB, having a briefer in the room live with the president is a minority. More often, the presidents have simply chosen to read the book, sometimes in the presence of their advisors, sometimes alone and then discuss its contents with the National Security Advisor and others. This was the model used by most modern presidents. The presidents who took a in-person briefing from a CIA officer are few. Gerald Ford did it for the first year that he was president. George H.W. Bush did it for his entire four-year term. George W. Bush did it for his entire eight years in office. And then a few presidents have done it occasionally. Uh, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama stand out here as people who occasionally took briefings, but it was not every day and it was not regularly scheduled. Some days they would read it, some days they would talk to an actual briefer about it. 
I found the passages on Reagan to be very interesting. We've covered Reagan a lot in the past year, and it it helped to really form the picture of Reagan that we've been we've been trying to uh, on the cast. I found the passages interesting because he was an avid user. I think initially they were wondering, this guy's a movie actor, like is there, what kind of a product are we going to need to develop? Only to find that, if anything, he was writing notes, asking for much more information, reading thoroughly. And that's why um, I think what's, what's great about um, your book, and again, it is The President's Book of Secrets, by David Priest, The Untold Story of Intelligence Briefings to America's Presidents. Highly recommend the book because it's also a little bit of a look at presidential history and how, how they work, their working style. And with Reagan, it kind of proves the point. There was a debate then and now of is the guy actually, you know, is he thinking for himself? Is he, Reagan was a reader. Yeah, and it was a big surprise to me to discover that because the mythology in my mind was that Reagan wasn't much of a reader at all, certainly not of top-secret intelligence. But three things in my research uh, lead me to reassess that and debunk that idea. Um, And we've talked a bit about this, and you've talked about it on your podcast a few times. One of them is the fact that I spoke with all six of his national security advisors and his vice president and others around him. And all of them told me, oh, yes, he, he would read. And you've read some of the memoirs of the people around him who wrote the stories about Nancy Reagan getting upset when they would give him too much to read at night because, damn it, he would read it if they gave it (laughs) to him. So there's that reason. Uh, The second reason is his diaries. Uh, With the publication of Reagan's diaries that he took on a nightly basis, you could look in there, as I did, and find that it's certainly not every day or even common, but there are many references to his daily intelligence, either by the initials PDB for President's Daily Brief or more generically, but things that clearly show he was reading the document. And then third, I wasn't able to look at Reagan's copies of the President's Daily Brief because those all remain classified, but each copy that Reagan looked at was returned to the CIA and put in storage. One of the CIA historians did go into the vaults And for a conference out at the Reagan Library several years ago, he looked at the first thousand or so of those hard copies that were returned to the agency. And he found on a minority of them, but certainly on more than one occasion every month or two, he found Reagan's own handwriting on those documents. He found underlinings, question marks, exclamation points. Sometimes he would add up numbers that were written about in a piece but had not been summed for him. In one case, he even found a typo in the president's daily brief and circled it. That's not the mark of somebody who doesn't bother to read the document. That's a mark of somebody who is engaged with that daily product. No, indeed. It's very interesting because, as as we discussed on this podcast, a different picture of uh, Reagan emerges. His administration also saw the expansion of the reading list for that uh, daily briefing to right. more than just himself and certainly the vice president because you were you were fortunate to have George H.W. Bush write a foreword for your book 
And uh, he was obviously, as a former CIA director, was an avid uh, supporter of intelligence. But it did expand in the use of the administration. There was even some concern, uh, obviously not with former President Bush's uh, use of it, but with so many people reading it. You, you mentioned that this book is interesting as a window into the presidency, not just as a history of intelligence. And that's one of the things that I, I found surprising here is finding how different the presidents disseminated this product because it's up to the president who else gets to see it. Back with its predecessor, the president's intelligence checklist, John F. Kennedy did not allow Vice President Lyndon Johnson to even know of its existence. So it was a real surprise when he became president to find out there was this daily document. Uh, Richard Nixon at one point restricted the dissemination of the president's daily brief to himself and to Dr. Kissinger. And Kissinger at that point was both national security advisor and secretary of state. But the most restrictive use of the document in history was by the man who is perhaps the most close to the vest, most paranoid president that we've had. Reagan was one of the most collegial, expansive, delegating presidents we've had. And sure enough, matching with that, the president's daily brief was allowed to go to more people, especially within the White House itself. You mentioned George H.W. Bush. Uh, he told me that this really upset him, that he did not like seeing copies of the president's daily brief floating around in the White House when he was vice president. And that's perhaps why when he came into office, he put new restrictions on it. He said that everyone who received it, which included Jim Baker as secretary of state, secretary of defense, Dick Cheney, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he said all of them had to take a briefer. Now, they didn't have to talk to the briefer, but they had to get the book from a briefer and return the book to the briefer to take back to CIA headquarters, because that way he thought he could ensure that the contents would remain secure and have the best information that he could use. Because some of these contents do contain sources, perhaps, and just things that not everyone should know. And, and a lot of people do uh, get into a White House. That's right. It's, it's a, the kind of thing where every single day the president's daily brief does not contain the names of intelligence sources or things that would immediately uh, cause exceptional damage to national security. But on many days it does. And you don't know on which day it's going to have that particular sensitive thing. So the smart thing to do is to protect that document at all costs to make sure that nothing inadvertently gets out. Because you can imagine, Bruce, if there's an article in the President's Daily Brief that contains the most sensitive collection on a particular foreign country, from human spies, from satellite imagery, from signals intercepts, and that gets out, wow, that, that's a real danger for never collecting that kind of information in that country again. Right, and could put some sources in jeopardy and all sorts of um, bad things. Um, uh, let's talk about the current president. It has really brought the PDB into light because, at least by some accounts, he didn't appear to be the type of person that was going to be an avid user of it, like uh, like both Presidents Bush, right. say, uh, or President Clinton. I also felt, though, that some of the criticism also was pretty strong and maybe from people that didn't understand the document either and how much it's changed. And so if um, perhaps a person, a new president coming in, wants a different format, like 
Trump is apparently the type of person who hates long, mm -hmm. deep dives into things. I like PowerPoints because truth is short. You know, it's kind of like a tweet or a, a PowerPoint. Truth, yeah. If it's truthful, if it's useful, it's short. And uh, so I, I thought both things, the, for the one that, that uh, perhaps, you know, um, it's concerning that uh, he wouldn't take advantage of this thing that so many of his predecessors have found useful. But also, on the other hand, I thought some of the criticism, uh, m maybe some of the critics didn't understand that this document can adjust to right. a different president's personality as well. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Not only can, Bruce, but always does. The, the history of this document is really the history of tailoring the intelligence product to the style and preferences of each president. So, in fact, the real surprise would be if the document did not change and did not adapt to this president. Um, it really did start last year before the election because there's, there's three tiers to the intelligence briefing process uh, when it comes to presidents. One is when they're just a candidate, and that's during the campaign. By tradition, since 1952, both candidates from the two major parties have received uh, intelligence briefings from the intelligence community offered by the sitting president. Harry Truman started this. Of course, he had come into office not even being aware that the Manhattan Project to build the atomic bomb existed. And he didn't want his successors to be as ill-prepared. Over time, the rationale for that has changed somewhat. It's not as much to prepare the candidates, given that one of them will not even win the office, but in a sense to prevent them from saying something galactically stupid on the campaign trail that involves classified information that will box them into a bad policy later. But those are not the most sensitive briefings. Those do not contain the kind of in-depth, highly classified information that's in the president's daily brief. Once election day happens, things change. Then you enter the second stage. And the president-elect, by custom since 1968, has been offered the president's daily brief by the sitting president. And that's remarkable if you think about it. Here is somebody who is still the president, still has responsibility for the next couple of months, but they're giving their successor the same daily top secret information they are getting to get up to speed on these national security issues. So during the campaign and the transition, Donald Trump was getting intelligence. And for the first time in history, there was massive media attention to the fact that this man was getting classified information that was being given by the intelligence community. The reaction to that was unusual 
because for the first time in history, there was a public reaction to these intelligence exposures. Jimmy Carter, when he got a transition briefing back in the day, he would just give a general statement about, yes, I heard about this country and this country and this country, and it was very useful. That's not Donald Trump's style. Uh, he would say what he thought as he thought it, and suddenly he would be either disparaging the intelligence or he would be talking about how good the briefers were in a way that we've never seen before. So it's not surprising to me that attention focused on it because the president-elect focused attention on it through his very comments. I think the closest parallel we have to this is with Richard Nixon, because Richard Nixon came into office believing that the CIA had it out for him, which is something this president appears to also have believed. He came into office doubting whether it really was going to give him much of an advantage, in Nixon's case, because he was a foreign policy expert already, in this president's case, because he thought he knew better than the generals and the experts already. And sure enough, during the transition, Richard Nixon didn't appear to read the president's daily brief at all, even though it had been offered to him. And there's the difference, is President-elect Trump did engage with the president's daily brief and did take briefings and appears to still be getting that intelligence now. The bridges haven't all been burned like they mostly were with Nixon. I imagine that uh, our intelligence services talked earlier about the thinking about them as a kind of customer service, which is, which is a different way for some people to view the the agency, but uh, adaptable and then looking to serve a customer. And I imagine they have a thick skin. Yeah, it's, it's funny. The narrative has often been, well, you know, this president is just going to have to get used to the way that national security and intelligence works. And in some areas, maybe that's fair. When it comes to the intelligence analysis serving the president, though, that's got it exactly backwards. It's not the job of the president to adjust to the patterns of the intelligence community. It's the job of the intelligence community to adapt to the style and preferences of the president. So when the president said publicly in an interview that he doesn't like 100-page reports when one page would do just fine and he prefers things in bullet format, well, there's no doubt in my mind that the people still inside the intelligence community got that message loud and clear if they hadn't heard it in private already and adapted the product going to the president to fit that declared preference that he had. Understood. Yeah, if it's about PowerPoints, then then I'm sure someone's working on a lovely deck right now. Yeah. Um, and uh, in a broader sense, there is at least tension or there appears to be some tension between this president and intelligence services. And for a lot of my listeners, things have really gotten to a point where where I get a lot of uh, kinds of questions. Just two years ago, you wouldn't have, have thought about much. And people are really, at least on one side of our politics, are really concerned about our institutions under a kind of attack that a person could be, you know, elected president, not to say this is going on, then kind of changing the intelligence services. And since intelligence services, particularly if you look at like after 9-11 or the run up to the Iraq war, have have a useful place in not just for the president, but in also providing information for Congress and then the public that supports maybe a presidential decision. You know, there's some worry that perhaps like 
a president could influence or even greatly disrupt the intelligence agency so far from the norm. And I wonder what you think about that. Is there enough of a structure in the intelligence agencies? Is there long-term legacy and mission and workings enough to that, that something like that is not as much of a possibility as, as some might fear? Yeah, you know, I do the same thing you do, Bruce. When I when when there's something that appears that looks new and different, I I go to history and I say, what are the parallels that we have? What can we learn from things similar to this? The closest one I can find to this was when Nixon came into office and was privately very disdainful of the intelligence community. You can find in the Haldeman diaries from from his chief of staff, and you can hear in some of the Oval Office tape recordings, his disparagement of the intelligence, his orders to Haldeman to, you know, fire 25% of the CIA tonight, and things like that, that Haldeman usually would just pocket veto and, and not act on. Right. There certainly was this kind of anger at the deep state, it's now being called, the idea that there are these professional bureaucrats who have an agenda of their own and they're really driving things. Well, two things happened. Number one, Nixon did did not fire 25 or 50 percent of the CIA. And the people at the CIA who were getting this kind of uh, negativity continued to serve the president. They continued to put their best analysis forward to help the very president who was making nasty comments about them in National Security Council meetings and other settings. The difference now, of course, is that those aren't being done in private settings. Those are being done out there in the media. But I think the parallel holds. The parallel holds. It might even be worse what, or more threatening what Nixon was doing versus uh, the intelligence agencies might say, well, let, let him tweet. Uh. For me, I think the, the lesson is that even at a time when they are being uh, unappreciated or disparaged, Intelligence officers do their jobs, and the parallel holds in that it would surprise me if the vast majority of people working on something like the president's daily brief today, regardless of what they think about the president's comments about them, they're still doing their best for the sake of national security and for the sake of the presidency, if not for the person of the president. Uh, They realize that the issues of national security are bigger than whether their feelings are hurt by a particular media comment. In terms of the nefarious side of it, in terms of, you know, is there resistance? Is there some kind of undermining the president going on from this? I think that makes for a great thriller novel, <laughs> but it doesn't it doesn't pair well with what we know about history, simply because that's not the way that these organizations have worked in the past, and there's no indication they're working that way in the present. I think that um, the agencies must be like kind of the the backup quarterback in a situation like that okay the the president is not using us very much now that could change tomorrow with some world event so we had better have our game up and and not even to say i think as you you pointed out there's a big difference between nixon and and trump in this respect as far as as far as we know right and another historical parallel that might be useful is the jimmy carter experience because he came into office with Vice President Mondale, both of them had been generally, and in some cases specifically, critical of United States intelligence. Uh, Walter Mondale, having worked on the Intelligence Committee, 
had been one of the people involved in the, the time of troubles in the 1970s when the intelligence community came under unprecedented fire from other elements of the U.S. government. And yet, once they started getting the briefings, once they started seeing how the intelligence could help them make these tough national security decisions, they largely became fans. Once they saw what intelligence could do for them, they came around. There's no reason to believe that won't happen with somebody, certainly somebody with this president's background. He's had to make tough deals around the world in the business world. I don't see any reason why he wouldn't see the value of intelligence and how it would help him to make better decisions, to get ahead of the competition, if you will. I know that you, you talk in the book about how George H.W. Bush insisted, the first thing he insisted to his son, the new president, George W. Bush, was read this, and maybe to others to make sure he was reading it, which he, he seems to have done. It seems obvious a president that reads it is a better chance of being a better president. And, and I like the way you phrase that, has a better chance, because the intelligence, it can be wrong. Actually, the, the collection, the, the actual raw intelligence can be incorrect. The analysis of the information can be incorrect. There can simply be not enough information to have a definitive judgment on any issue. Then the president may process that intelligence, but other considerations like relationships with allies, political ideology can interfere with a good decision. So it doesn't guarantee a good decision, but it certainly is an input that will help reduce the uncertainty, which is the problem on most national security issues, is we don't know exactly what's going on with the capabilities or the intentions of those who would do us harm. So I think you're right. It increases the chances of better decisions. Of course, the potential downside is what if somebody reads this book, this president's book of secrets, and sees the president's daily brief not as something to help him make better decisions, but sees it as a bunch of know-it-alls condescending and, and telling him, well, this is how things really are. And instead of taking it as an input, takes it as a challenge or an affront. I, I don't have evidence that that is happening, but that is certainly possible with the right kind of personality in the Oval Office to see someone who is trying to help you as someone who is talking down to you. Yeah, it's definitely a, a line to draw. You have a, it seems like that's what occurred with Nixon, and you have presidents who want to be, they are the creative actor, that they are the ones right. that are, uh, that, that, that will act, and that then they'll change the information that's in the next briefing. If that, if you have that philosophy, you're, you're, you might be less likely to use it. But nevertheless, the book will keep publishing, and it'll, it'll adapt to all presidents, including this one. Yep, and that's the bottom line message is the, the institution has endured because it has been valuable to men of very different backgrounds. You have people with vast foreign policy experience who have come in, and you've had people with no foreign policy experience who have come into the office, and all of them have eventually found that this is one of the more valuable inputs in their decision making. There's no reason to believe that won't continue, but there's also no reason to believe that it's going to remain the same. If this president or a future president wants his daily intelligence report in, in the form of tweets, that's that's doable. Uh, I've written analysis that was one or two sentences long. And for a while in the president's daily brief in the 1980s and early 1990s, 
there were short updates on analytic items that were the equivalent of today's tweets. If you have a president who wants it in video form, presidents since Richard Nixon at least have received video supplements to the PDB, classified voiceovers with images. If a president wants it in interpretive dance, there's going to be a whole lot of intelligence officers learning how to dance to express analysis. It's the president's choice how to get this book, and that is going to endure. That's great. Great information, David. And the book, again, is The President's Book of Secrets, The Untold Story of Intelligence Briefings to America's Presidents. I highly recommend the book. Go and get it. David, if people want more information about you or your book, where can they get it? Well, I do have a website, davidpriest.com, and there's some information there. I'm also out there on Twitter. The handle is at David Priest, D-A-V-I-D-P-R-I-E-S-S. And there I'm usually bringing some of the history to bear on current affairs, some presidential history, some interesting intelligence points of view from this book and other declassified materials just to widen the public understanding of these topics and to see how it is that all of this works to help us make better national security decisions. Well, David, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for the opportunity, Bruce. It was fun. Okay, and I want to thank David Priest for joining us on the program today at the website, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We will have a link to his book, which is, again, The President's Book of Secrets by David Priest. Also, we will have links to some declassified PDBs so you can see for yourself what it looked like, at least in history. And don't forget about the Premium Podcast. There are over 20 bonus episodes that now people who subscribe to the Premium Podcast have access to since last fall. And you'll get access to all of them if you subscribe. On our website, there's a link to subscribe to the Premium Cast. Thanks for listening. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow.